0: You are now in sync with Infosec Sync.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 22nd episode of the InfoSecSync Podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security.
0: I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSecSync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech,
1: they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at
0: VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now, for the stories of the week, ending May 15th, 2015. What's, What's up, up in- InfoSecSync fam?
1: How you guys doing? Welcome to our 22nd episode. Wow. It's awesome to be here. We've got a lot happening uh, in the world of information security, and we can't wait to talk about it with you guys. But first, we want to thank uh, our fans that are sending in the fan mail.
0: Yeah, keep it coming, guys. That fan mail's pretty funny and pretty awesome.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so let's jump into our first story. So, right now, we have an extremely serious problem out there for virtual machines. Yeah,
0: this just came out. So, Venom. Wow, Venom.
1: (laughs) So, extremely serious virtual machine bug threatens cloud providers everywhere. So, Venom allows attackers to break out of guest operating systems, escape into hosts, Saying to patch now. So, there's an extremely critical bug in the Zen, KVM, and native QEMU virtual machine platforms and appliances that makes it possible for attackers to break out of protected guest environments and take full control of the operating system hosting them. Security researchers warned this on Wednesday, just today. So, the vulnerability is serious because it pierces a key protection that many cloud service providers use to segregate one customer's data from another's. If attackers with access to one virtualized environment can escape to the underlying operating system, they could potentially access other virtual environments. In the process, they would be undermining one of the fundamental guarantees of virtual machines. Compounding the security, the vulnerability resides in a low-level disk controller, allowing it to be exploited when guest or host OS's alike run Linux, Windows, Mac OS, and uh, possibly other operating systems. Researchers from security firm CrowdStrike who warned of the vulnerability wrote, Most VM escape vulnerabilities discovered in the past were only exploitable in the non-default configurations or in configurations that wouldn't be used in secured environments. Other VM escape vulnerabilities only applied to a single virtualization platform or didn't directly allow for arbitrary code execution. So we have uh, some history here, CVE 2007-1744 which was directory traversal and shared folders feature. Uh, CVE2008-0923, path traversal and VMware's shared folders implementation. CVE2009-1244, which was Cloudburst, which is the VMware virtual video adapter vulnerability. CVE2012-0217, which was a 64-bit PV guest privilege explanation vulnerability and CVE20140983, which is Urkel VirtualBox 3D Acceleration multiple memory corruption vulnerabilities. So Venom, which is CVE20153456, is unique in that it applies to a wide array of virtualization platforms, works on default configurations, and allow for direct code, arbitrary code execution. So the vulnerability is a result of a buffer overflow bug in QEMU's virtual floppy disk controller which is used in a variety of virtualization platforms and appliances. It is known to affect Zen, KVM, and the native QEMU client software and may affect others. VMware, Hyper V, which is Microsoft products, and Box hypervisors are not affected. At publication time, patches were available from the Zen project and QEMU project. Red Hat also has a patch. There are also workarounds that users can follow to lessen the risk of exploitation. The vulnerability is serious enough that users of other vulturization packages should immediately contact the developers to find out if they are susceptible. The bug has existed since 2004. So, there is no indication that the vulnerability is actively being exploited maliciously in the wild, although the vulnerability is agnostic of the OS running both the guest and host. Attack code exploiting the bug must have administrator or root privileges in the guest. The threat is greatest for people who rely on virtual private servers, which allow service providers to help host multiple operating systems on a single physical server. Because the virtual servers are often provided to different customers, it's common that they have administrative or root privileges to that guest OS and could be used to take over the underlying machine. So CrowdStrike's advisory went on to state Venom, CVE 2015-3456 is a security vulnerability in the virtual floppy disk drive code used by many computer virtualization platforms. The vulnerability may allow an attacker to escape the confines of an affected VM guest and potentially obtain um, the host system and other VMs running on that host. So, I mean, in light, Zen systems running x86 paravirtualized guests are not vulnerable to this exploit. ARM systems are not vulnerable. Enabling stub domains will mitigate this issue by reducing the escalation to only those privileges accorded to the service domain Um, QEMU-DM and stub-domains are only available within the traditional QEMU-Zen versions So very interesting stuff Um, Really cool really cool We also have a bonus. Um, So this is kind of following venom. This is a little bit more information. So There is a critical crypto bug which exposes Yahoo Mail, Other Passwords, Russian roulette style. So OpenSSL defects still exposing sensitive data even after the patch is released. So the vulnerability was dubbed um, Venom, which is short for Virtualization Environment Neglected Operations Manipulation. But some people are already comparing its severity to Heartbleed, the catastrophic bug that was disclosed uh, last year, April 2014. That explode private crypto keys, end user passwords, and other sensitive data belonging to countless services that used OpenSSL crypto library. At this early stage, it's really too early and preliminary to know if the comparison to Heartbleed is exaggerated, since at the moment there is no indication that Venom is actively being exploited. Todd Beardsley, a senior research or a research manager at Vulnerability Assessment Provider Rapid7, has indicated that the threat from Venom is, not likely, is likely not as serious. In an emailed statement to Ars Technica, he wrote, the people most affected by Venom are those who run hosted VPS services and therefore do not routinely give root access to strangers' guest machines and those who subscribe to the same VPS service. Customers of the VPS services should pester their vendors until patches are applied and the vendors should move on this very rapidly. So given this uh, barrier to entry, how easy is it to exploit Venom and gain control of the host operating systems and neighboring guests? As of this moment, no one has released public proof of concept code to demonstrate the reported Venom bug. So they're left with some measure of speculation as to whether or not it is as easily exploitable as stated or as thought. So it's important to note that while this vulnerability is technically local only, successful exploitation leads to breaking out of a guest OS into the host OS. The circumstances leads me to believe that Venom is an interesting bug to the sorts of people who do exploit uh, research for a living. To be able to break out of a guest OS to a host OS is rare and powerful ability and such bugs are uncommon. Given this incentive of interestingness uh, I would expect to see a public proof of concept exploit appear sooner rather than later. Those limitations aside, there's an extremely broad range of platforms that are vulnerable to this exploit, and those platforms house servers used by banks, e-commerce providers, and countless other sensitive servers. Given the large number of servers that are vulnerable and extremely high value to the, of the assets they contain, this bug should be considered a very high priority to patch and take care of within the environment. Yeah, so
0: this is a very serious issue, this Venom.
1: Right. So something to look out for, it's kind of like Inception, right? So if I'm able to break out of Dream, if you have three layers of Dreams, and I'm able to break out of Dream 3 into Dream 2, now I can realize, you know, what's going on around me, and uh, you can get access to more things. It's very powerful. Once you get at the hypervisor level, you're able to affect multiple other things that are going on and just think if you're a uh, virtual private cloud provider and you use QEMU or any of these um, technologies and operating systems to provide uh, you know VPC services to your customers and now you can have an attacker buy a portion of that VPC have privilege escalation Um, to a guest account which you may or may not use for regular maintenance inside of that environment now they're able to affect the gamut of operations it's not a good thing it it can really diminish your um, your kind of uh, I guess secure awareness uh, your your, what, what am I trying to say like your kind of security report card per se if i'm a, going to a virtual private cloud provider i'm going to the going to go to the vpc provider that has the best track record for security i'm not going to go to somebody that's hacked or that has been previously hacked or that's very cheap right exactly brand management is key so um cool there's definitely a balance out there um but yeah very cool bug so what do you got nick
0: so reach, researchers uncover a self-sustaining botnets of poorly secured routers uh-oh Large numbers of home and small office routers are under the control of hackers who are using them to overwhelm websites with more junk traffic than they can handle. The devices are so poorly secured that they have given rise to self-perpetuating botnets commandeered by multiple attackers. The distributed denial-of-service attacks have been underway since at least December and show no signs of letting up, researchers from DDoS protection firm Encapsula said. Over the past four months... Encapsula has recorded attacks from 40,269 IP addresses belonging to 1,600 ISPs around the world. All of the compromised routers observed were able to be remotely administ- administered, and almost all of those accounts continue to use vendor provided login credentials. That's vendor provided login credentials. Wow. Encapsula found that the devices were infected by a variety of malware titles, including Mr. Black, Duffloo, and Mayday. The ease of compromising the routers makes them free for the taking, all but ensuring an unending series of follow on attacks. The researchers wrote the following Given how easy it is to hijack these devices, we expect to see them being exploited by additional perpetrators. Even as we conducted our research, the Encapsula security team documented numerous new malware types being added, each compounding the threat posed by the existence of these botnet devices. Their analysis reveals that miscreants are using the botnet resources to scan for additional misconfigured routers to add to their flock. They do so by executing shell scripts, searching for devices having open SSH ports, which can be accessed using default credentials. This script identifies remotely accessible routers so they can be hijacked and made part of a botnet. Facilitating the infiltration, all of these under-secured routers are clustered in the IP neighborhoods of specific ISPs that provide them bulk to end users. For perpetrators, this is like shooting a fish in a barrel, which makes each of the scans that much more effective. Using this botnet also enables perpetrators To execute distributed scans, improving their chances against commonplace blacklisting, rate-limiting, and reputation-based defense mechanism. The proliferation of poorly designed routers and inexperienced internet users are the two most crucial ingredients fueling the self-perpetuating botnets. Manufacturers design routers to be easily connected by giving each one the same administrator username and password, and in some cases, making the devices open to remote administration by default, rather than allowing remote administration only when a user turns it on. The manufacturers frequently include no documentation warning users to change the default credentials, and even when those warnings are included, and many end users do not heed the advice. So, Matt. What's up, man? These people get their routers. Admin password and they let it fly leave all the ports open don't change anything up and then they're wondering how did i get hacked
1: you know i i see it's like making a pizza you got a little bit of the bread you know the dough you mix it up you put the sauce on it you put a little bit of cheese it's like polio string cheese you put the pepperonis and then you bake it in the oven. Then it's a nice, delicious pizza mm. for, for people that are trying to exploit your router. So the combination is you just take it out of the box, you plug it in, you just go with it. Recipe for disaster. I mean, people need to... Just like... I think people have the mentality like a car. So when I buy a car from a dealer, I'm not worried about changing any settings. The only settings I want to change are the AC settings and the settings for the satellite radio or the regular radio that's it anything else with the car I'm not going to change I'm not going to change my key fob up every six months or every year I'm not really worried about security with a car because I bought it like that you just trust that it works Right. what people don't realize is it works over RF signals that can be replayed very easily and there's really not a lot of code hopping that happens unless you get an aftermarket system typically so, this John Q. Public, Jane Q. Public that's out there now is not really security forward thinking. They, they don't really, they just want to take it out of the box, plug, plug it, in, it in and
0: go. Start making money or whatever right. you know they bought it for.
1: Exactly. And if it's for a family and you have kids and things at home, I really hope that parents are blacklisting or whitelisting sites taking a look at the content that's coming into the household that's all critical things I mean
0: and if they don't have the time for that have a third party like net nanny or something like that doing it for you
1: right exactly take those steps and while you're at it let's change the default passwords a lot of people think well it's connected at my house why should I care who's gonna care about my home Wi-Fi well the thing is you have the connection to the internet you've just expanded that attack surface out to the internet there's you know, there's repositories such as Shodan HQ that goes and port scans the entire internet, puts it into a centralized repository so that somebody doesn't even have to do the hard work anymore. They can just search it, find which which things are vulnerable on the internet that they want to write an exploit for and boom, you have it. And Shodan did that because he wanted to raise awareness for individuals that, you know, had insecure things connected to the internet. But nobody took it serious. So, well, I think I take that back. Companies did take it serious, but the general consumer did not take it very serious. Um, I know we've all seen it. You know, you go into somebody's house and you're like, hey, what's the password to your Wi-Fi? And they're like, it's password. I didn't change it.
0: Or it's on the router.
1: Or it's on the router. You know, I, I just don't get it sometimes. But another thing to look at is within the firmware on some of these devices. So, um, I know with like treadmills, with IoT devices that are connected to the internet um, by default, they have a lot of credentials that are programmed into the firmware. And it takes very little reversing to get into the firmware and find those default values. Um, that's another thing. I mean, there are backdoor accounts and things like that that can be found. That's another thing to keep in mind. So there's. So the
0: internet of things is what you're talking about here. Internet of things. So we were talking before about about the the thermostat and the fridge and now I'm running on my treadmill and all of a sudden it goes from (laughs) ten to like nineteen really quick. Right. And not even trying to give me a denial of service? Not
1: even not even changing. That's that's basically something that you have on your network that's dormant that remains on. So as an attacker, that's something I can use now to launch an attack and become part of a botnet, <laughs> you could have a cardiac attack on that sucker, or you could have a botnet being launched so you don't even know it.
0: So they can control the treadmill <laughs> in the middle of the night?
1: <laughs> Wouldn't that be scary? Like you just hear, like Annabelle? <laughs> you just hear it going downstairs. You're like, what the heck is going on here? You know but
2: oh, I
1: got that. Oh, look who's here, Vic. What's up, man?
2: What's going on?
1: Nothing much, man. Just talking security.
2: You know what I always thought, like, um, with all the routers and stuff, I don't, I would think if I was a manufacturer, I would have, like, a some kind of GUI interface where you just put, you know, the essential, and it, it does a hardening pattern for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it goes ahead and hardens it for you. So, i um, not sure... If any of the manufacturers there, maybe that's why they can sell them for sixty-nine ninety-five these days. But um, seems like they should have something where it does some kind of automated setup to, to kind of lock everything down. Um,
0: Wait, are you talking about a um, a third-party application or?
2: It could be uh, an application that they sell with the with the unit, you know, with the product. It comes with the product and it it goes in and it makes the. But store here's the thing: what
1: if what if I backdoor that?
2: There, I mean, there's definitely a what if they could, they could continuously. I would, I would imagine it would be an ongoing update to their, um, to their product, and that's pr- it's probably labor intensive, but um, might be something where, y- you know, the the software, the application is installed on the router, and it goes in and it gets an update, and then it's constantly it's updated with the latest uh, hardening. Um,
1: so what you're saying is standardization of security practices for consumer devices
2: yes and and have it set up so it's uh, automated in a way where it, maybe it automatically goes out and off hours from 1 1 in the morning to 2 in the morning for most folks and it updates and then it does a reboot you know if that's how you want to set it up or so that's <laughs> how
1: it would control the firmware or the software updates to the yeah device. and
2: then that way that way you have an active you have active security for homeowners, and I'm sure, I'm almost positive, I would say like even if you sold a product and you sold a subscription and say it's $49 a year for the subscription, I guarantee probably most people would buy that. You know what, maybe that's something we should do, right?
0: You just told everybody what our plans were. Oh, man.
1: Dude, that's where our demise, but.
0: No, I was just kidding. <laughs> JK. That's a
2: bad idea. That is a bad
1: idea, you should not do that. <laughs> victor victor too too (laughs) Uh, uh,
2: yeah so uh yeah as you know that's something that i thought active security right
1: but no here's the thing we're in a we are in in this country at least the dynamic is that if i do something i don't necessarily have to be responsible for it when i say that i mean financially and for system security so financially, if my card gets compromised, what happens to me as a consumer? I get reimbursed, right? The, you It know, wasn't me that made that uh, those charges, those fraudulent charges on my account. So that's credited back to me. What happens if my system is involved in a botnet, Nick? What happens if your router at home is involved in a botnet?
0: Well, it's going it's to be... Um Working more than you think it's working.
1: Right. But what's going to happen to you legally as the consumer, as the person paying the service provider for that device?
0: Well, you're probably going to get cut from the ISP once they find out what's been going on. And there could be some other legalities about what happened or what it was used for. I mean,
1: have we seen any litigation against a consumer for their system being used in nefarious activities and having to... Basically, I haven't seen that. Do you have one against you? (laughs) Nick and Nick was the first one. His (laughs) iPhone was used in a a mass Android killing.
0: In MASH. So, uh, regarding the encapsula thing we were talking about, right? (laughs) The compromised routers are Linksys ones, Asus, D-Link, Micronet, Tenda, and TP-Link. And Encapsula has contacted specific router makers and ISPs identified in the current attacks. You said Linksys. Yeah.
2: Isn't that a Cisco? Isn't that done by yeah. Cisco? Yeah.
0: That's Cisco. Linksys by Cisco. The
2: wrapper.
1: <laughs> Let me see that
2: packet. Let me see that.
1: <laughs> router. All right. All right. So, enough of that. Um, let's get into the next topic. Oh, on a side note, I put an SSD in my uh, in my MBP, my MacBook Pro.
0: Yeah, you know me. How long did that process take? I I, I think the listeners would want to know how to do that or how long it takes. So
1: um, the hard part is you have to know a backup and restore strategy. For me, I I backed up. I had an encrypted volume. I backed up to File Vault, which was also encrypted. Or excuse me, I had an encrypted File Vault volume on my Mac which I backed up to time, uh, time Machine, which was an external hard drive, and I had encrypted that external hard drive where my backups were. And you backed you that double-
0: thing up. I know, and double encrypted it.
1: Yeah, but the problem is um, Macs don't do well with cr- encryption. They'll encrypt the volume for you, but if you want to decrypt a one terabyte volume, you better have a lot of time and a lot of faith. Um, mine was just airing out the service that does the decryption, um, was not working too well for me. Um, the was it disk Util? yeah uh, diskutil that I used. Um, it was showing like seventy seven percent on the decryption. It was it would show uh, um, you know it it was reversing the encryption method, and it would go to seventy seven percent then fail, and then it would go to seventy seven percent again, and it was just it was crazy. It was flip flopping. So I got sick and tired of it. Um, when the Mac is decrypting it says you can use it do not use it, it is slow you have to do strategic clicking you will get frustrated with it, you'll get really mad so when that shenanigans was happening I said alright I gotta figure something out so um, I got the new hard drive I tried to make a, so the Mac backup disk creator that you get from Apple does a Lion um, backup disk, it does not do a Yosemite Or if you remember back in the episode, you called it Yosemite. (laughs) But it doesn't do a Yosemite um, backup disk for you. So I tried to, like, make one um, by downloading Yosemite from the App Store, dissecting some things and putting that and making it bootable on the thumb drive. I wasn't successful. um, But what I will say is um, the method I used was put in the new hard drive, boot it up, you can do an internet recovery so that's what I did it'll go out to Apple server pull down an image that will boot up it gives you the basic um, you know disk utility time machine it gives you those options it's like a you know not a pre-execution environment but before you get to the OS screen during the login or reinstall that's like the you know the, the place in the middle where you can make changes and format discs and things like that so I had formatted the disk that was in the box um, and then I tried to initiate a time machine restore. When I tried to initiate a time time machine restore it failed um, just because when I put in the password to decrypt the volume, it accepted the password but um, it just didn't jive well at all. Um, so I was getting kind of kind of fed up with that. Um, and then uh, what ended up working for me was, Um, I had taken another um, Time Machine backup previously and uh, it was unencrypted, and that one worked perfectly. So
0: what you're saying is if you're going to do it and you already have stuff encrypted, go ahead and do a backup where it's unencrypted if you're going to do the backup right away.
1: Right. Got it. Right. So before you start decrypting the volume um, while you're in it, because when the backup happens, even if you have an encrypted hard drive or uh, an encrypted file system, um it's decrypted by the time time machine is working and it's backing up your system so it, if I have an encrypted Mac I can still back it up to time machine with an unencrypted backup that's the best thing to do that's the best advice that I could give um, it is it is very quick um very fast um, i I took one of my the um, you know hard drive with with the spindle in it And I put it in there, and that's my encrypted volume now. And then my decrypted volume is the the SSD. So anything I really care about, I can put in the encrypted volume. Otherwise, like the operating system and all the relevant files for that can remain on the SSD for fast boot.
0: How large is your SSD drive? One terabyte. Wow. So that's your startup disk?
1: Yeah. I got it for $320.
0: So when you uh, power on your Mac now, how much faster is it?
1: Um, I would say it's in the range of... um, it's in the range of 110% quicker. Wow, that's awesome. It's very fast. That's great. Yeah, so um, definitely a worthwhile upgrade. If you're thinking about it, don't think about it anymore. Just do it. Um, I got a Transcend SSD. Um, it's kind of the cheapest on Amazon. Didn't have you know, people didn't have too many issues with it. Fit right in. The form factor was good. Um, I also used, I took out the, um, to put the second disc in, I took out the CD drive mm-hmm. and put in, um, they have drive caddies that you can get, put it in there, I used the existing SATA connection so I didn't have to add anything inside the box. I just literally plopped in the hard drive into the drive caddy, put the drive caddy into the system, and it's perfect, no problem. And
0: how much RAM do you have on that?
1: Right now I have um, 16 gigs of RAM.
0: Cool. So that's a pretty quick machine then.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, right now, I'm looking at it, and I mean, it's barely using any memory. Um, I was getting uh, 490 um, write, 510 read megabytes megabits per second, which is pretty fast. So, very happy with that upgrade. Money well
0: spent. So, awesome. So, all you listeners out there, if you have any more questions about... Um Matt's uh, upgrade and the hardware he used and what he did um, just uh, send us some mail at Matt at InfosecSync or Nick at InfosecSync um, dot com who? <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back and, and we're, we're back. back so researchers craft
1: network attack to hack surgical robots sort of so University of Maryland study tests the remote security risk of telemedicine so as part of the series experiments, a group of researchers at University of Washington's biorobotics lab launched a denial of service attack against a remotely operated surgical robot, causing it to become difficult to control. So the goal was to help design systems that could correct for such attacks and filter them out by identifying legitimate commands from the operator. So the robot used in the test was an experimental system. However, it used a different networking approach from existing FDA approved surgical robots. The researchers admitted that mounting such an attack on a current surgical robot would be much more difficult. Rather than finding security flaws in the existing robots, the researchers focused on finding ways to secure future telerobots that might use public network infrastructure not just for surgery but for other life saving tasks such as firefighting, explosive ordnance disposal, and searching collapsed buildings after earthquakes. So today, um, the mass majority of robotic surgeries carried out over hardwired dedicated local networks and hospitals. But there have been a number of cases where physicians have remotely performed surgery via robot, most notably during the war in Iraq. So new surgical robots could potentially be applied to assist people with life-threatening conditions in the wake of disasters since they reduce the complications that could be caused by transporting patients to distance hospitals. The risk of such systems is that they rely on near real-time network communications. Communications that could, in theory, be interrupted or corrupted by an attacker if they traveled over public networks. So, they want to make the next generation of telerobots resilient to some some of the threats that they've detected without putting an operator or patient or any other person in the physical world in danger. That was um, by Tamara um, Bonacci the lead author of The Research and Doctoral Candidate in Electrical Engineering at the University of Washington. So in an ideal world, you always want to have a private network and everything could be controlled, but that's not always going to be the case. So that was uh, Howard Shezik, which is part of the University of Washington Biorobotics Lab. So he says that we need to design for and test additional security measures now before the next generation of telerobots are deployed. If there has been a disaster, the network has probably been damaged too. So you might have to fly a drone in, put a router on it, and send signals up to it. That sort of network could potentially be attacked by jamming or an attacker intercepting and retransmitting signals with corrupted data. Also known as a man in the middle. So, the robot used in the test, um, the Applied Dexterity Raven 2, is an experimental open source robotic system originally developed at the University of Washington by electrical engineering professor Blake Hannaford and former professor Jacob Rosin now a professor at UCLA. So the researchers found that they could interfere with the responsiveness and smoothness of the remote control of the robot. So they focused on a denial-of-service attack based on the observation that these attacks cannot be mitigated using available cryptographic solutions. The researchers wrote in a paper uh, on, to, on the test we experimentally investigated the impact of the denial service attacking of various, uh, of varying severities. So the researchers, um, Bonacci, Junji Yan, Jeffrey Heron, and Tadayoshi Kono, found that operators were able to adapt over the course of experiments to the attacks but said that it does not imply that denial of service attacks are not a problem for teleoperated robotic systems. On the contrary, it urges us to quickly develop efficient denial of service mitigation methods while indicating that in disastrous scenarios where communication networks may inadvertently be clogged or even denial of service, uh, teleoperated robotic systems will remain functional and capable of providing the necessary services.
0: Cool. Can you imagine a doctor in the middle of a operation and he's doing it five robots (laughs) he's doing it remotely yeah and the power goes out or somebody does something to the data and he's holding an artery
1: like clamping it
0: yeah that's
1: crazy (laughs) error error (laughs) that's crazy so what what do we got
0: going on rootkits rootkits gpu-based rootkit and keylogger offer superior stealth and computing power Proof-of-concept malware may pave the way for future in-the-wild attacks. Developers have published two pieces of malware that take the highly unusual step of completely running on an infected computer's graphics card rather than its CPU to enhance their stealthiness and give them increased computational abilities. That's pretty cool, too, because these gamers will go and spend tons of money on the machine and buy two graphics cards and top-of-the-line gpu cpu on it everything's on this bad boy so is that what you have running all these instructions on it nice both the jellyfish rootkit and the demon keylogger are described as proofs of concept by their pseudo anonymous developers whom ars was unable to contact tapping an infected computers gpu allows malware to run without the usual software hooks or modifications malware makes in the operating system kernel. Those modifications can be dead giveaways that a system is infected. Here's how the developers describe their rootkit. Jellyfish is a Linux-based userland GPU rootkit proof of concept project utilizing the LD underscore preload technique from Jinx CPU, as well as the OpenCL API developed by Kronos Group GPU. Code currently supports AMD and NVIDIA graphics cards, however, the AMD Apps DK does support Intel as well. Advantages of GPU stored memory include, no GPU malware analysis tools are available on the web, it can snoop on CPU host memory via DMA. GPU can be used for fast and swift mathematical calculations like XORing or parsing. Stubs and also malicious memory is still inside the GPU after the shutdown. Here's what's required for use. Have OpenCL drivers or ICDS installed. Nvidia or AMD graphics card. Intel supports AMD's SDK. And change line 103 in the rootkit kit.c to server IP you want to monitor the GPU client from client listener let buffers stay stored in GPU until you send magic packet from server here's their disclaimer educational purposes only authors of this project demonstration are in no way shape or form responsible for what you may use this for whether illegal or not they provide no technical details about demon keylogger other than to say it's a proof of concept that implements the malware described in a 2013 academic research paper titled, You can type, but you can't hide, a stealthy GPU-based keylogger. We're going to post that on our website for you. The yep. demon creators stress that they are not associated with the researchers. Here's a quote from them. The key idea behind our approach is to monitor the system's keyboard buffer directly from the GPU via the DMA, which is the Direct Memory Access, without any hooks or modifications in the kernel's code and data structures besides the page table. The researchers behind the 2013 paper wrote, the evaluation of our prototype implementation shows that a GPU-based keylogger can effectively record all user keystrokes, store them in the memory space of the GPU, and even analyze the recorded data in place while negligible runtime overhead. What are your thoughts on that one, Matt?
1: You know, I mean, uh, attackers definitely are going to find ways to um, attack GPUs. Um, it's something that when Bitcoin mining was initially oh yeah they big, use that yeah, yeah they use that that pretty um,
0: you have to. There's so much computational power that's being used for those algorithms.
1: Right. You know, it's it's there. So why not use it? Um, also, I think there was uh, some issues with trojanized updates to NVIDIA. Um, nvidia gpus for a little while um, so there's a number of ways that you can get in it's again on the consumer to make sure that they employed methods to um, protect that with great power comes great responsibility if you have a lot of horsepower in your box that's a that's a lot of hack value so um... definitely keep a lookout keep an eye out for that um, and then when they do have methods to scan the memory that's earmarked for the gpu mm-hmm. um, you know those are definitely methods I think uh, the Norton's the McAfee's they they should invest in kinda look at that those portions of memory but the thing is um, as memory demands increase it's going to become harder with processors to keep up with scanning all of that memory it's not uncommon like for example I have 16 gigs in this laptop how long does it take for um, the CPU to scan that 16 gigs of memory to see if anything is going on within memory, you know. Um, right now it, it can be, uh, code can be executed at a very rapid pace, malicious code can be executed at a very rapid pace. The box can beacon out, pull down some more, um, you know, uh, some more malicious code, and can alter the way that it's on there. You can Trojanize uh, system files. There's a lot of things that you can do So now um, with the increased memory usage and the kind of the the ability to scan that memory isn't there yet, in my opinion, we need kind of faster. An i7 can go pretty quickly, but at that stage, the hardware isn't the problem, it's the software. So it's the the definitions files that are there, the scanning engine um, that's on the box. Can that keep up to keep the bad guys out?
0: I guess it depends on how fast your system is, right?
1: Right. So, you know, I guess it's really just building a balanced system. But either way, that's what I think about that. I think it's definitely a lot of hack value. It's out there, and um, people need to keep an eye on it. So.
0: so you had mentioned something earlier this week about WordPress being exploited.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody who has a WordPress site needs to make sure you're updated. Look at the plugins that you have. Um
0: and Look there's at. a lot of sites on the internet that use WordPress Word, uh, plugins. It's
1: a very popular CMS.
0: Very easy. Right. The, the People love the themes. They're yeah, easy you can to just pick set
1: from. It, set it and forget it. E- even if it's a static page, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a blog. Uh, WordPress was a blog initially. Um, but, and I think a lot of people think of it as a blog, but you can use it for websites. Very powerful. Um, Drupal, WordPress, all those CMS's that are out there. WordPress is very popular. Um, I'm a fan. I like it. So uh, with that, actively exploited WordPress um, bugs put millions of sites at risk. So there's a cross-site scripting vulnerability that allows attackers to take full control of unpatched sites. So millions of websites running WordPress are at risk of hijacking attacks thanks to a vulnerability that's actively being exploited in the wild and is present in the default installation of widely used content management systems uh, security researchers warned this today on Wednesday. So the cross-site scripting vulnerability resides in, um, gen- what is this, generic icons? Am I saying that right? Generic icons? So that's a package that's part of the WordPress theme known as 2015 that's being installed by default. So this was uh, on a blog post by Security. So the cross-site scripting vulnerability is DOM-based, meaning it resides in the document object model that's responsible for how text, images, headers, and links are presented in a browser. So the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP, has much more about DOM-based cross-site scripting vulnerabilities on the link we'll post on our site. So DOM-based cross-site scripting attacks require the target to click a malicious link, um, a limitation that greatly lowers its uh, severity. Still, once an administrator takes bait while logged into a vulnerable WordPress installation, the attackers can gain full control of the site. So security researcher David Deed wrote, what is interesting about this attack is that we detected it in the wild days before disclosure. So they got a report about it and some of our clients were also getting reports saying they were vulnerable and pointing to um, http site.com WP content themes 2015 generaicons example.html number one. In this proof of concept, the cross-site scripting printed a JavaScript alert but could be used to execute JavaScript in your browser and take over the site if you're logged in as admin. So everyone responsible for administering a WordPress site to so check if it's running the icons package. If it is, they should immediately remove the example.html file that's included in the package, or at the very least Make a make sure a web application firewall or intrusion detection system is blocking access to it. So, security has notified almost a dozen web hosts that have already virtually patched the security hole uh, on the sites they host. The hosts include GoDaddy, HostPapa, DreamHost, ClickHost, InMotion, WP Engine, PageLe, Pressable, synthesis, Site5, and SiteGround.
0: Wow, patch it. Yep,
1: patch it and forget it. Like set it and forget it. Well, don't forget it. <laughs> Keep patching. <laughs> key patching. But, uh, yeah, so definitely something to look out for. So very interesting stuff. Make sure you're taken care of and, uh,
0: yeah. So our next story has lawyers threatening a researcher over key cloning bug in a high security lock. Cyberlock. Securing people and airports has critical vulnerabilities, the report warns. Critical vulnerabilities in a market-leading line of digital locks securing hospitals, airports, and water treatment facilities makes it possible for rogue employees or outside attackers to clone digital keys. Thursday's advisory from security firm IOActive is notable not only for the serious security issues it reported in the CyberLock line of access control systems, which are certified to meet a wide range of U.S. government requirements and certifications. The report is also the topic of a legal threat from CyberLock attorneys who invoked draconian provisions of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act if IoActive disclosed the vulnerabilities. A redacted version of a letter CyberLock outside attorney sent IoActive researcher Mike Davis has reignited a long-standing tension between whether it should be legally permissible for researchers to publicly disclose unfixed vulnerabilities in the products they test. Quote, of course, as you know, the public reporting of security vulnerabilities can have significant consequences. Jeff Rabkin A partner at the Jones Day Law Firm wrote in a letter dated April 29th, one day before IOActive published the advisory. Redacted company name also takes the protection and enforcement of its intellectual property rights seriously and prior to any public reporting wants to ensure that there has been no violation of those rights, including their licensed agreements or other intellectual property laws, such as the anti-circumvention provision of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Presumably, IOActive is aligned with ensuring responsible disclosure and compliance with the laws. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998 makes it a felony to circumvent technology intended to prevent access to copyrighted material. It also provides substantial civil penalties copyright holders may recover. Word of the letter touched off whales of protest on social media sites from security researchers and privacy privacy advocates. They characterized it as an abuse of the legal system that threatens the public's right to know about vulnerabilities and products they use to secure their property and secrets. Officials from Cyberlock did not respond to emails seeking comment for this post. Wow. And there there is some more information active's five-page advisory warns that some of the bugs undermine fundamental assurances about the security of the product, which looks and acts like a traditional lock, but is locked and unlocked with a programmable digital key known as CyberKey. That allows a CyberLock to impose tight-knit restrictions on each keyholder that, among other things, controls the time of day someone can access a particular area or a locked storage container and... The duration of time the key is valid. It also allows each access or access attempt to be logged to create a detailed audit trail. CyberLock marketing materials also stress assurances that a cyber key cannot be duplicated or changed, according to their advisory. CyberLock offers a line of high security locks and cylinders, as well as related products and services for updating, managing, provisioning, and storing cyber keys. In various marketing materials cyber key is described as unclonable and suitable for use in money handling and critical infrastructure systems as a secure and auditable solution. However, after some reverse engineering it appears that these devices are easily cloned and new keys can be created from lost cylinders and keys regardless of the permissions granted to the key. Additionally, Time-of-day restrictions are enforced by the key, not the cylinder, allowing an attacker access at any time regardless of the configuration. The advisory went on to say that the site keys are stored in unencrypted, clear text form that can be removed from the locked cylinders. Attackers may also obtain the site keys by intercepting communications between any previously authorized cyberkey and cyberlock. Once extracted... The side key can be used to create clone keys that can be modified to remove time of day or one-time access restrictions. CyberLock cylinders can also be broken off from the company's line of digital padlocks, with a few sharp strikes to the mechanical retainer, allowing the lock to be unlatched. Even more potentially serious, as the following diagram taken from an oscilloscope connected CyberLock model shows that we will post. The devices may be vulnerable to a form side channel attack. Known as simple power analysis, the technique also allows the side key to be recovered. The report also includes other images that suggest it's possible to extract the entire firmware that powers the CyberLock. The report does not elaborate, but the firmware extraction attacks appear to use a technique known as optical fault injection, in which secure chips are dissected and analyzed with mic- microscopes and lasers <laughs> microscopes and lasers and lasers oh
1: man do you hear that
0: oh it sounds like it's about that oh, time
1: yeah you already know what time it is time to close this thing out hope y'all enjoyed it um, we covered a lot of great topics again hit us up matt at infosexsync.com or, or nick at infosexsync.com we'll answer any questions that you have if you'd like us to come out uh, we do do some talk talks with that um, thanks guys we appreciate it and uh, make sure you
2: stay in In-sync sync with, with infosexsync
0: sync.